So you know when you're in church and somebody's on the platform and they're doing an altar call and you know you're supposed to respond and then the moment passes and you're like, whew, I'm glad that's over. And then the next pastor gets up and goes back to it. I know, well, that's what we're going to do right now. I know, come on. Because I know that there's somebody here that was supposed to come down here when Pastor David was on this platform. And so, you know, in, in our home, forgiveness is freely given. But you still have to say you're sorry. Right? In our home, forgiveness is freely given. But you still, just because forgiveness is freely given doesn't mean that you don't have to say you're sorry. And, and that's what acts of repentance are. God freely forgives but there is still an expectation that we say to him, God, I need to say, I'm sorry to you. And when you do that, I'm telling you, it opens up your heart to receive the gift of forgiveness that he wants to give to you. You've experienced in your friendships, you've experienced in your marriages, is that when you say you're sorry, the forgiveness that that person wants to give to you, when you make that expression of an apology, it just it, it opens up your heart. So this is just what I want to do. I'm not going to ask you to come up here, but I'm, I'm just going to ask you to do this. If, if, if during that time you were one of those people that you were like, and you might not even know why you were supposed to come, but you just had this sense, I think I'm supposed to be up there. I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand where you are. Just going to invite you to raise your hand. Come on. There you go. Keep it up. Keep it up. That's good, isn't it? All right. If somebody's got a hand up next to you, just put a hand on their shoulder. There's a hand right here. Don't let it. If you've got to get up to get to them, you go to them. If you've got to get up to get to them, you go to them. Come on. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Father, I pray for every hand that just popped up in this sanctuary. As Kim said, you fought to the death for us. If you were willing to pay such a big price for the forgiveness that you want us to have, then we know there's something about that forgiveness trickling down deep into our heart. And I pray that that forgiveness right now through this simple act of repentance of them raising their hand, even having the courage to come back to it and being more conspicuous than the first time, God, I pray that that forgiveness would begin to wash away shame. I pray that that forgiveness would begin to wash away regret. I pray that that forgiveness would begin to wash away self-condemnation, and I pray, Father, that they would see themselves as the new creation in Christ, that you see them as you've seen them from the beginning of time. Father, your word says that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray that they would feel more clean in this moment on the inside than they ever have before. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, Amen. Come on, how about some noise? How about some noise? Hey, during worship too, I, I also had a sense that, that there was somebody here tonight. I don't know if this is an actual dream that you've been having, uh, but you just, you've been struggling with the feeling of just being bound up. In the, in the picture that I felt like God gave me for you, and maybe this is an actual dream that you've been having when you sleep at night, is, is, is like that you're in a, a, a mummy clothing, right? Where the, you know how a mummy gets wrapped up so tight they can't move, and then they're put in that coffin. And so I just felt like somebody here tonight, that that's you. You feel like that 
on the inside. And again, it could be an actual dream that you've been having, a nightmare that you've been having. So again, I know this takes courage, but I'm just, if that's you, I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand where you are. If you've been having that feeling, there's a hand right there in the back. There's a hand right here. Come on. If you've got to get up to get to them, you get up to get to them. Come on. There's another hand right over here. Come on. Put your hand back up so people can see you. If you've got to get up to get to them, you get up to get to them. Come on. We come to church to do business, right? Come on. Father, I pray for every person that just raised their hand. I pray, Father, for an unraveling deep inside of them right now. I pray that they would experience the liberty and the freedom that we know that you're speaking over them right now in the name of Jesus Christ. We know, Jesus, that when you died on that cross, that you broke every bondage. And Father, whether that bondage that they feel right now is because of mistakes that they've made in their past, or whether or not that bondage is something that's being imposed on them through words that have been spoken over them, Father, that that are a lie of their identity, Lord, we pray right now in Jesus Jesus' name, that they would have a sense of all of that just falling off. God, like Lazarus coming out of the tomb after four days, and he shed those grave clothes, and there was a life, and there was a celebration and a rejuvenation of his physical body. Father, I pray that same thing for their spirit, God, for the eternal part of who they are in Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody said together, amen. Come on, make some noise. Let's make some noise. Good stuff, isn't it? I could just let you go home, but I'm not going to do that. I've been working on this sermon. I'm hoping it's going to work on you. Thank you. Thank you for over here. If we don't get through all of it, we'll get, we'll get back to it in a couple of weeks. I'm so excited. We're going to be at a conference all week. And so uh, my good friend Brandon Shank from Lifehouse down in Virginia Beach is going to be preaching next Saturday. We're going to be here, uh, but because we're going to be at a conference, we've invited him to come and share. So you're going to be in for a treat next week. So he's a, a good friend uh, and doing a great work over there uh, in Virginia Beach. So, hey, let me just say, too, Father's Day, baseball game coming up, Father's Day weekend. If you've not gone online to get your tickets, make sure you do that. You can go online uh, to the Giving link and there and you click the events uh, icon at the top in the menu uh, buy tickets dads it's, this is a tradition for us we have a great time we're doing an abbreviated service uh, as abbreviated as we can get here at the city life church so our, our goal is to be out of here by 6 uh, p.m that saturday night uh, and we can carpool over together you can bring your kids uh, if you like there's fireworks at the end the kids run the bases uh, and we have a great time together so hey i just want to give one more nod out and then we're going to jump into our message too uh, how about mother's day weekend last weekend here at the City Life Church. So good. And, and it wasn't just that weekend and Kim, what Kim Tree shared and Vanessa, but it was also uh, several of the weeks prior how when Shani preached, Sharon Thomas preached, and I'm just, I'm just pointing it out because we believe that women should have a voice in the church today. Come on. And they, and they have a voice here. And if you're interested in what they had to say, and you should be, uh, I hope you go onto those, uh, our website and listen to those podcasts because they are powerful, powerful. So how many, if you're on social media, how, how many of you have been listening to the Laurel Yanny recording? Anybody? All right, so we're going to play it now. All right, wait a minute, boy, they play it. So, so, and then, and then we're going to, we're going to, I want to, we're, we're going to do a vote to see who, who hears what. So it's Laurel or Yanny. All right, go ahead and play it. Brandon. Brandon. 
Brandon. Just kidding. That's not the one. Uh, that's just that's not the one. Here's the real one. Here it comes. This is the real one. Laurel. 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 All right, that's good. How many how many people here Laurel? Raise your hand. All right, now how many people here Yanny? I know. I, I know. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Now, now we're not going to take the time to explain why some people hear one and some people hear the, how many people are hearing that for the first time? How many people don't even know what's going on in the world right now? Okay, just checking. All right. Oh, that's so great. It is pretty fascinating why different people hear different things. I'm, I'm playing, I'm pl I played that for you tonight because I love this social experiment that's happening right now in, all over the world through social media because it reminds us that sometimes there isn't a right and wrong answer. Sometimes there's two rights. All the people that hear Yanny aren't wrong. All the people that hear Laurel aren't wrong. It's what you hear. It's the sound that your brain's translating for you. It's fascinating because it, it creates this, it's, it's a fun tension because it creates a tension because everybody that hears Yanny looks at everybody else and says, how, do, how are you not hearing what I'm hearing? And all the people that hear Laurels, and you, you got to be, how can you not hear what I'm hearing? It depends on you. Not everything in life will fall neatly into a right or wrong box. It's just not going to do it. Is part of Christianity right and wrong? You better believe it is. Are there absolutes? Yes, there are. And we're going to be getting to that in the weeks to come when we begin to talk about morality and, and the things that God has to say about morality through God's word. But so much of life is not about a simple right or wrong. The, the right for one might not be the right for the other. The wrong for the one might not be the wrong for the other. And, and this has kind of inspired a conversation in our church that we've entitled Directional Living. And we're going to put this first slide up. If, 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 if you've not been here, you can go back and look at this uh, through. Our, our podcast, but I'm not going to explain the whole thing, but it was birthed out of our Easter message, and it's through the prophetic imagery of the geography of Israel, that Sodom and Gomorrah is south of Jerusalem, Emmaus is west of Jerusalem, and these represent scales or zones for us. So much of Christianity for us is always about this scale, what we're calling the ways of God, which speak to moral decisions. But much of our life is not lived here. Much of our life is lived here, which we're calling the plans of God, which speak to his purposes. You should have a sense of wanting to follow God's will for his purpose for your life just as much as you're committed to issues of morality in your life. And on here, let me tell you, there's absolutes, but there's also things that are relative. And that might come as a shock to you, but we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. Here, it's the same. What God's plan for your life, and as far as romance or finances, let's put the next slide up there. This is a great example of, of what, what plans of God's uh, might fall under. Have it, give me, there it is. Your vocation, your home, your finances, your marriage, your family, your, your church, what church you're going to go to. For some of you, you might go, I don't know why everybody doesn't come to the City Life Church, but everybody's not supposed to come to the City Life Church. Right? There's great churches in our city. If God's called you here, then it's right for you to be here, but if he's not called you here, then it's wrong for you to be here. So much of our life is lived in the Emmaus zone, and we want to always be moving closer to Jerusalem for both his plans and his ways. 
I love this series because it's beginning to spark a conversation in our church, and God is beginning to speak to other people through this imagery. Is Jerry Whistler here? Did I see Jerry? Jerry's in the back there. Jerry and I were having a conversation the other day, and so he, so give me that slide. He was talking about what it looks like if you think of it as a graph. That is, if you're a math person, right, on a graph with the X and the Y axis, everything to the left and down is always negative, but everything up and over is always positive. And so you, you, you look at this in our decision making that what God asks of us is always what's best for us. And when you say no to God's yes, you're always settling for less. Dave Komornik, where's Dave? Dave's right there. He sent me one. God was speaking to him as he was looking at just the whole picture of the Middle East. And he, and, and he said, there's also not just a graph, it's a cross. And then he began to look at all the nations uh, during Israel's history that surround Jerusalem. It's powerful, isn't it? Because at the center of the cross is Jerusalem, which is what God's best for us is. It's personified by the concept of Zion in the Bible. Whenever you read about the Bible, it talks about Zion. It's this prophetic picture of God's best for us. And we were talking about how what's so powerful about this is that God wants to bring us out of the world into the center of what God's best is for us. But then guess what he wants you to do? He wants to send you back out into all those places, which is the great commission to bring other people back with you. So, so good. Appreciate you guys sending those things to me. I hope God's speaking to you about this series, showing you things that maybe it's not what we're covering, but he's speaking to you about your choices and your decisions. Matthew 16, 24, this is the verse that we've been working out of. It says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me. It's interesting that in this verse, as we've been reading it each week, that this verse that has popularized the concept of bearing your cross and dying to self, the emphasis that Jesus gives in this text is one of direction. It's about following after God. And we've got to follow after God with his ways and his plans. Directional living is about deferring to and submitting to God's ways and plans with a heart that believes God's will always has our best interest at heart. So we're going to pick up with where we left off a couple of weeks ago. For people, if you're here and and you're in a season of life where you're making major decisions about the plans of God, maybe about where you're going to live or about your vocation or about romance or about finances, and I want to talk to you a little bit tonight out of a couple of stories in the Bible that hopefully will inspire your heart that God has made a promise to you that he's going to make it clear to you what plan you're supposed to embrace. The stories of the Bible are given to us to speak into our story. These stories are given to us to speak into my story and to speak in your story because your story is just as important to God as the stories that we read in this book. All right, we're going to have some young people that are participating in our service tonight. We love the youth of this church. Are you with me? Come on. That's not loud enough. So Luke's going to come, and he's going to read one of our first texts tonight. Exodus 1, 8 through 10. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from our country. 
Skipping down to uh, verse 15, it reads that, Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Sephora and Pua. When you help the Hebrew woman as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this? He demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people to throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 through 9 reads that about this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a very special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a, bath, uh, she got a, uh, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance, watching to see what would happen to him. Soon, the Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the river bank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent a maid to go get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby crying, and she felt very sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go fi and find one of the Hebrew women to the nurse and get a nurse for the baby for you, she said. She asked, yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me. The princess told the baby's mother, I will pay you for your help. So the woman took the baby home and nursed him for her. Come on. Nice work. So you know the story, right? Moses grows up in Pharaoh's court. He's second with his brother, right? And they're competing. And then all of a sudden Moses decides that he's going to take matters into his own hands. He ends up killing uh, an Egyptian, and then he's on the run. Now Moses runs a long way. Let me sh show you this map. This is Egypt right here. So this little red line, this is the red line of where the Israelites travel, right? This is a this is this is a incredible distance. This is the land of Midian. I think sometimes when we read the story of the Bible, we think that, you know, that 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 that, that Moses just went and hid in the desert. But he traveled a great distance to come and live here in the land of Midian, where God found him. And then God finds him on the mountain, right, with the burning bush, and he calls Moses and he says, right, Moses, you're the one that's supposed to go back. Now Moses was 40 years old when he committed the crime, and he was in the land of Midian for another 40 years. So when he's 80 years old, God calls him to go back to be the deliverer. Now Moses says, I, you got the wrong guy. I'm, I'm not, I can't be the one. And so God says, hey, I'm going to give you some miraculous signs. So he says, take your staff, throw it on the ground, and when Moses throws it on the ground, what does it turn into? Right? And for most of us, that would have been, I'm out of here. Right? You've definitely got the wrong, you got to go get someone else now, right? It's because, because what's Moses supposed to do with the snake? Yeah, he's supposed to pick it up. Pick it up by the tail. When he picks it up by the tail, it goes back to the staff. And then he says, put your hand in your cloak. And when he pulls it out, what's on it? 
Yeah, one of the most dreaded diseases of Moses' day. And then he also says, which is one of the forgotten ones, he says, if you take some water from Nile, pour it out. As you pour it out, it'll turn to blood. Now, there's a lot of prophetic imagery in all three of those, but the, 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 the impact was that God was saying, Moses, I'm going to do some miraculous things through your life to demonstrate, to demonstrate that people should follow after you. Exodus 4, 10 through 13. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, O Lord, I'm not very good with words. I've never been. I'm not now. And even though you have spoken to me, I still get tongue-tied with my words. And they get tangled. The Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak? Hear or do not hear? See or do not hear? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. Go and I will be with you as you speak And I will instruct you in what you say. But Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send someone else. You see, what Moses didn't realize is that the greatest miracle that God was sending with Moses was Moses' story. And I think sometimes these subtle things in Scripture, they get overshadowed by the more dramatic things. A staff turning to a snake, a hand that turns to leprosy, water that's drawn from the river that's poured out and becomes blood. But the greatest miracle that was a demonstration to Israel that this man was God's plan for their deliverance was the story of his life. People thousands of years ago, they looked different, they had different customs, but they were still people. And when strangers meet one another, what do they do? They ask each other questions. It's the same with you. When you're talking with people, when you're traveling, when you're shopping, when you're standing in line and you turn, when you're meeting someone here, you begin to ask them a series of questions. I can imagine when Moses comes back, they say, what family are you from again? Are you Aaron's older brother? Oh, no, I'm his younger brother. Well, that's, in, that's impossible because every boy of your age is dead. How many of those elders, they themselves, had lost a child to the slaughter? How many of the people that Moses was talking to had buried a child 80 years ago? Brothers, sisters, Grandparents burying grandchildren. Every male child of Moses' generation had died. How many other families do you think had made a basket? I think many of them probably did. I think many of them probably tried to hide their child. Many of them would have done whatever they could. But there's not one story of one child surviving. Just this one. Just this one man. The greatest miracle that God created to make it clear to the Israelites that Moses was his plan was that he stood alone in his generation, that there was no one else like him. Matthew 13, 53 to 56 says, when Jesus had finished telling these stories and illustrations, he left that part of the country 
he returned to Nazareth, his hometown, and he taught there in a synagogue. Everyone was amazed. And they said, where does he get this wisdom and to, the power to do these miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter's son. We know Mary, his mother. We know his brothers, James and Joseph, and Simon and Judas. We also know his sisters live here right among us. Where did he learn all of these things, right? They're trying to figure out, who is this guy? We've seen him work miracles, but we know he doesn't have any rabbinical training. He's a carpenter, just like his father. Who is this man? We've got 2,000 years of history on our side. We read this story, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you're, you're probably relatively familiar with the story of Christianity. And so when we read these stories about Jesus, we read it with the knowledge of who he is, or at least who we believe him to be. But 2,000 years ago, you have to remember when Jesus came onto the scene, he was a stranger to everyone. Isaiah prophesying about him said there was nothing about his physical presence that would draw us to him. He didn't look like Marcus wearing City Life merch. They would come to him and they would ask him questions. Who were who your parents? They would come to him and ask him questions. Where were you born? And at some point, they would have discovered something remarkable, remarkable about Jesus' life. See, Ali's going to come now and read us our second text. Come on, give it up for See, Ali. Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through 18. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Come on, make some noise. I hope you find those young people at the end of the service and tell them they did a great job. Let's look at the map of Jesus up here. Now this is zoomed in, but, but I know it's hard for you to read, but this is Jerusalem right here. And so much of Jesus' ministry, this corresponds in these numbers to things that happened uh, dur during Jesus' ministry. And so when, when you look right here, you realize that a lot of Jesus' time was spent right there around Bethlehem. Right there. In his adult life, in his ministry. Now... When they came back from Egypt, we know that he settled in Nazareth, which is much further north up by the Sea of Galilee. And so, right, Jesus is a person. 
He's interacting with people, just like you and I. So when they come into town, people are having conversations with him. And I guarantee you, people were saying to him, who, who were your parents again? Tell me where you grew up. I grew up in Nazareth. Is that where you were born? No, I was born in Bethlehem. What? How old are you? Did, did you say you were born in Bethlehem? Are you 30? How many of the people, when he traveled around to these towns, ministered to them? How many of them had children who were victims of the slaughter of innocents by Herod? Jesus, like Moses, stood alone in his generation. There was not another male child of his age for a couple of generations, because the Bible tells us it was right two and three years old and younger. Generations of male children in Bethlehem were slaughtered. And here comes Jesus stepping onto the scene alone in his generation. All of them are Israelites. Are you tracking with me? All of them are thinking, this is just like our deliverer Moses, who he himself stood alone in his generation to make it plain, to make it clear for us that he is God's plan. Now you might say, Fred, this makes me uncomfortable, and I'm with you because it makes me uncomfortable too if you read it the wrong way. Because what we're not saying is that God had a hand in the slaughter of those children just to make a point because we know that God is not flippant when it comes to the sacredness of life. We know that that kind of evil only comes from one place and it's from the depths of the pit of hell from our enemy, the devil. What these stories tell us about is that no matter what the devil throws at us, that the sovereignty of God always has the power to redeem. Romans 8, 28 all things work together for the good, for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So for every evil scheme, every evil scheme, God finds a way to redeem it and to reveal his plan to the world. Isaiah 9, 6 reads this way. For a child is born to us and a son is given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus' message isn't just the way for us, it is his very life. God has a way of making his plan plain for you and for me because the nature of God is to reveal. It is not to hide. The nature of, of God is to reveal. It is not to obscure. The story of Moses and the story of Jesus teach us many things, but one of them is most certainly that God is at work in your story, right? Because these stories are supposed to instruct our story, and God is at work in your story to reveal his will to you in a way that's meaningful to you. What we just studied was a way that was meaningful for them, that when Jesus stepped on to the scene because he was an Israelite, he spoke to them through their culture. He spoke to them through their practices. He spoke to them through their history. 
Because God knows exactly what we need to hear for something to be plain to us. And he's going to do it for you. That's his promise. He's going to speak to you in a way that leverages your life experience. He's going to speak to you in a way that leverages your personality. He even uses your biases for your good. Because he can redeem anything. Even your unique approach to how you analyze problems, how you process information, whether you hear Yanny or Laurel or Brandon or any other crazy name, God knows how your brain works because he gave it to you. And he knows how to speak to you. He knows how to put a Moses in front of you so that it stands out amongst the rest. He knows how to put a Jesus in front of you so it stands out amongst the rest. So when you're praying about where you're supposed to live, he's going to put something in front of you so that it stands out above the rest. When you're praying about romance and finances and vocation, when he's, when he's got a will for your plans, not just for your moral life, but your purpose life, he wants you to see it. And he's going to make it stand out for you in a way that's obvious. Let's put that Second Emmaus slide back up, Derek, the one with the list that's attached to it. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Listen to 2 Timothy 4, 5. This is such a great verse. You should keep a clear mind in every situation. Now, we tend to push past that little part, and we, 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 we get to the second part of this verse. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news, right? Because this is the part of the message of Christianity that's been popularized. But there's lots of messages that are part of Christianity. And part of the message of Christianity is that God has a will not just for your moral life, but your purpose life. What does he say? And fully carry out the ministry that God's given to you. But where does he start in his instruction to Timothy? He says, you should keep a clear mind in every situation. One of the great promises that God gives to us as his children is that we can have the hope of clarity of thought when it comes to the plans and the purposes of God over our life. God has a plan for you, for everything on this list and more. He deals in the realm of certainty. He wants you to know his will, and he always finds a way to make his plan stand out above the rest. Be patient, trust in him, and wait on him. Listen to this verse in Psalm 27, 13. Now, you know Psalm 27, 13, because I talk about it all the time. I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But this next verse, listen to what comes after it. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Stand with me. Father, as we go back into this moment of worship, I pray for every person here that's in a season of decision. A season of decisioning of significance. Maybe it is about romance or about vocation, about where they're going to live or a church that they're going to call home or where they're going to give volunteer time, Father. Whatever that list is on their life, that's that, on their list that's life-altering, God, that they're in a place of making this decision, God, we declare over them right now in Jesus' name a clear mind to see the Moses path, to see the Jesus path, to see the one that you've made plain, to see the one that you've made clear, to see the one that you've put in front of them that you want them to walk down. We think about your promise in Psalm 119 that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. 
Illuminate the way in front of them, God. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.